0: Welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Dellingpole, and I am so excited about this week's get- guest. I have been trying to track him down for a long, long time. Um, <laughs> I'm not but, that difficult to find. No, yeah, yeah, but but in the phone book. But you have resisted before, and now and now here you are, Lord Ridley, Matt Matt Ridley, um, scientist, uh, journalist, libertarian. Yeah. yeah um, no, or, or classical liberal. Both. Also,
1: never quite know what the difference is. No, no, no.
0: And you fight for good good causes in the House of Lords. I say good causes because I share all the things. I share your belief system. But I think the, your most your greatest. I bet, I bet you don't. I, I bet you're not as big an atheist as I am. No. Okay. I'm right, not. Okay. But, but but the reason I like God is yeah. that God hates um, <laughs> climate climate alarmists. He 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 wants to smite them with his. <laughs> <laughs> With his mighty fist. <laughs> well, that's because climate alarmism is a religion. It's a rival version of God. That's absolutely it. Um, I think there is an argument, isn't there, that the decline of of conventional religion, of, of traditional religion, um, the melancholy, long withdrawing roar, mm-hmm. um, has has created this this void, which has been filled by this new belief system. In in it's kind of Gaia worship, isn't it?
1: uh yeah there's something in that and there's a very good book by catherine nixie uh about the takeover of the roman empire by christianity and how brutal it was how really really nasty it was how it was a cultural revolution of unparalleled viciousness right unlike what we were taught which was nice saint augustine came along and told us to be nice or whatever really? now uh the the parallel there i think is that when they're young and new religions uh can be very intolerant and very determined to drive out rivals and i think that's what you're seeing with a lot of this gaia worship and by the way the chap who invented the word gaia jim lovelock is 100 next month and he's still alive and i'm going to his birthday party so am i good yeah <laughs> isn't that funny isn't it funny that? and he's very sound now is- uh, he, he was an alarmist on climate change but he's seen just uh, after the climate gate emails and things he's seen just how much nonsense there is in this area it's not all nonsense but it's an awful lot of exaggeration and uh, uh, extra panic.
0: Now, you've you've come from a scientific background. You read zoology at Oxford, your yep. doctorate as well. Yep. Um, was the wh- when was the moment when you became a, what's known as a climate skeptic?
1: It's quite complicated, actually, in my case, because I covered climate change. Uh, when it first blew up in about 1988 uh, for uh, The uh, Economist. I was the science editor. I wrote a couple of pieces about how there's this new worry that carbon dioxide is increasing in the atmosphere and that it was likely to lead to warming. Uh, And at the time, I completely believed the uh, general estimates of climate sensitivity, which was that this would lead to several degrees of warming, and this could be really quite unfunny. And I held that position for quite a long time. In the 90s, I began to get a little more sceptical. I began to, to say, well, hang on. And then I saw the hockey stick graph. And the hockey stick graph made me think, oh my goodness, something really unnatural is happening to the climate. Compared with, you know, a thousand years of relative stability in the climate, we've got this huge tick up in temperatures. And I saw that graph and I thought, wow, I've been wrong to err to, 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 uh, towards skepticism. I'm back in the true faith. And then, of course, I started reading Steve McIntyre and his, his analysis of how they'd done the hockey stick graph, and it turned out to be about 98% fraudulent. And uh, maybe that's an underestimate. Yeah. Uh, and once you and you know, it's not easy stuff to understand. You have to understand it, but but uh, you have to dig into it. But it it is a, a system of statistical analysis that leaves out any temperature trend that that stays flat, and grossly exaggerates any one that shows a rapid uptick. Now, that re- that was when the scales dropped from my eyes, and I then began to read a lot more stuff uh, about uh, both temperature records and um. Uh, um Uh, the you know the the measure well there's two things here one is whether or not we're exaggerating the problem Mm. and the other is whether the solutions being proposed would help at all Uh, and I think I'm very skeptical on both at the moment Um, I'm not a denier I think uh, carbon dioxide is increasing I think human beings are increasing it I think it's the cause of uh, quite a lot of the recent warming possibly most of it, um, but I don't think the warming is happening at a dangerous rate, uh, and I don't think the measures we're taking are going to uh, um, uh, do anything anything but harm.
0: And I think they're already doing harm, uh, particularly to poor people, and I think that's unacceptable. You, I think, coined the phrase "chemotherapy to cure a cold," uh, <laughs> which I, I think does rather sum up the the situation. What? Just give me some examples of the kind of because.
1: I Put a tourniquet around your neck to stop a nosebleed was a, was a previous version. It didn't work quite
0: as well. There, there are lots of people out there in in the middle. They, they 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 say, well, even if even if climate change isn't a problem, these measures we are taking to decarbonise the economy can't do any harm do you want to explain why actually they are doing a lot of harm yeah that's that's that's
1: very ignorant when people say that because they really should do a bit more research and find out that one one of the measures we're doing is burning forests uh in yorkshire cutting them down in the carolinas to burn them in yorkshire which is not good for woodpeckers and beetles and all those kind of things and by the way produces more carbon dioxide sure it'll get reabsorbed by a growing forest in about 80 years time but that's when the problem's supposed to be hitting us so it doesn't help um, we're denying funds to Africa for the development of gas uh, as a cooking fuel. Now, that means that people are cooking over wood, which has two effects. One, it means they die. Three million people a year die from the effects of indoor air pollution because they're cooking over wood fires. Uh, and Two, it means that they cut down forests. Well, we don't want them to do that. So you know, there's real environmental damage being done by our policies, and there's real uh, uh, human health problems. And then there's the diesel scandal, um, the 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 push to clad Grenfell Tower. You know, that was because of energy uh, and climate issues, uh, and a lot of you know cowboys jumped on the bandwagon and started selling dodgy cladding and and the fire risks were brushed aside. You know, these are not painless policies uh, and they are particularly painful to people in the developing world. Uh, that's where the real pain is being felt.
0: I think it's been described as eco-imperialism and, and a lot of global institutions are are responsible for this, this problem. The World Bank, for example, will not fund fossil fuel projects in in africa well as you say the result of that is forest chopped down people indoor pollution Yep. yeah
1: horrible yeah and uh uh, you know and meanwhile there are real environmental issues i mean don't get me wrong i'm an environmentalist I, I think what we're doing to the oceans is still shocking overfishing them we're damaging them in all sorts of ways uh, i think uh, alien invasive species wiping out uh, rare creatures on islands and things like that are you know are huge urgent issues and these are getting drowned out so it's not just uh, what climate change is is doing Climate change policies are doing, it's what they're preventing us from doing by focusing. I quite like the fact that we're now worked up about plastic, by the way. Mm -hmm. But why is plastic in the ocean such a problem? It's 90% of it's coming out of Asia. Why is there so much plastic in Asia? Partly because we're exporting it all to Asia so they can so called recycle it. In fact, most of it gets dumped. Or a lot of it gets dumped. Uh, And why do we do that rather than burn it here? Because we say we don't want the emissions. Well, actually, if we burnt it here, we we incinerated it, we would get the energy back from it, we would not be polluting the oceans, uh, and uh, it would be a win-win
0: situation. Sure, we shouldn't be using as much plastic in the first place, but that's another issue. That's what Patrick Moore says as well. The the, the co-founder of, of Greenpeace. He says we should be burning plastic. After all, it is it, it, it's derived from fossil fuels. It's perfectly, and that would work right. with it.
1: Yeah, people were worried about the dioxins that you got from um, uh, fires that weren't quite hot enough uh, 20, 30 years ago. That's been solved as a problem. I mean, you, you know, you can have really high temperature furnaces that turn everything basically into uh, um, CO2 and DHMO. DHMO is a really nice chemical, by the way. Do you know about it? No, tell me. Uh, dihydrogen monoxide. It's it's found in all uh, oh, ca- I know. cancer tumors. <laughs> yeah, I, know. It's, I do know, Sorry. It's, it, <laughs> Yes, it's terrible. In the vapor state, it scalds your flesh. it it can drown you as well it can drown you exactly terrible Uh, and it's a big greenhouse gas yeah it's called water
0: (laughs) yes yes, exactly (laughs) now Matt you share my enthusiasm for the natural world I mean I like like you I'm a complete nature freak one of the most exciting experiences for me recently was going up to St Kilda and seeing my I'm first, very envious. Seeing my first puffins, and not just not just one puffin. I mean, I, we arrived and we saw no puffins at all. And as we were leaving, and I was asking that our guide, you know, are we going to see any puffins? And he said, Well, you might, you might not. What time year was this? Um, it was May. We saw two thousand puffins. Right. It was fantastic. Well, I'm going to see two thousand puffins tomorrow. Because well, they probably on, live on your doorstep. On an Matt. island called the Farn Islands off the Northumberland coast,
1: where there's about 45,000 pairs of puffins. Mm. And the numbers go up and down at the moment, but they've got, they're have got they dramatically higher than they were in the, in the 70s when there were just a few thousand pairs there. And that can't be
0: true, though, Matt, because I, I read in the newspapers that puffins are under tremendous stress. Well,
1: here's an interesting thing. Puffins are under stress in the Lofoten Islands in Norway and in parts of Iceland. Uh, they haven't bred successfully for many years and, not, and the populations are declining there. Uh, The Farne Islands, which is one of the most southerly colonies in the world uh, of of puffins, certainly in the North Sea, it's one of the most southerly colonies, um, uh, they're thriving. Uh, Likewise, on the west coast of the UK. So the southern end of their range, puffins are doing fine. The northern end of their range, puffins are doing badly. That implies global cooling. It's obviously not... Yeah the case it's 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 because of problems with the ocean too many uh, the wrong kind of fish and not enough of the right kind of fish or something like that but uh maybe caused by overfishing by people or maybe by just natural changes we don't know but the point is that every people who say that the decline of the puffin is down to climate change need to explain why at the warmer end of their range they're doing fine at the colder end of their range they're, they're suffering
0: yeah well you must get rather tired of all these these fake animal fake news animal scares where we're told that the population of x or y is being damaged irreparably by climate change and and so on how do you how do you persuade people because you must meet people all the time who you get into conversations and they and they start relaying this information to you how do you let them down gently well i think um
1: uh, i think it's important to draw attention to what the, the real causes of species declines are. So um, I was at a meeting yesterday to discuss what to do about the grey squirrel, which is wiping out the red squirrel. Yeah. Um, and the reason it wipes it out is because it gives us a, it gives it a nasty uh, virus called um, squirrel pox. And the latest idea is to use gene drive, which is gene editing, which would uh, which you would release a few grey squirrels who. Uh, could only produce male babies and their children could only produce male babies and so on so you would actually drive females extinct in the population and that would crash the population eventually and this is a technology that's now beginning to work very well on insects and it's working in mice in the laboratory etc and this could really be helped with with uh, in uh, endangered species sorry I've gone off track no it's I'm good. not talking about climate change no I'm, like, um, I'm liking this but you see on my own farm in Northumberland I know of three species that have gone extinct in my lifetime. Well, no, sorry, two and one that's about to go extinct. The one that's about to go extinct is the red squirrel. We've still got a few, but we've got, we're waging war on the red on the greys, but we're we're losing. Um, the uh, native crayfish has gone extinct because of the signal crayfish that yep. came from North America, and the water vole has gone extinct because of the mink that came from North America. So. You know, just locally, just say to yourself, look, is climate change causing extinctions locally, or is something else causing extinctions locally? Just try and bring it back to the local for people. I find that that tends to be helpful. Um, because I just think we're looking at the wrong issues you know wherever you look all around the world at you know conservation issues why some birds are declining and others are not you know why are curlews doing incredibly well in the North Pennines but not in the Lake District um, it's nothing to do with climate change it's all to do with whether you're killing
0: enough crows and foxes yes (laughs) in that case which of course is is ideologically uncomfortable for for the greenies who think that They believe that nature exists in steady state, don't they? Well, this is, I think, one of the key points, is how dynamic nature is,
1: particularly in the oceans, by the way. You get these huge changes. I mean, a few years ago, uh, throughout the North Sea, there was an explosion of something called the rat-tailed pipefish or something right. it, was, it was a thing like a bootlace and uh, it was a bit of a catastrophe because this thing was so numerous I mean it, you would find it in drifts on the, on the beach um, uh, for about two years it was extremely numerous and the puffins took it and fed it to their babies and so did the terns and this thing's got almost zero nutrition in it so the poor things died with these bootlaces sticking out of their beaks um, and everyone got very worried and said this is a real problem we've got this you know, surge in this species um, must be something to do with climate change. Of course. Um, well, it went away. I mean, a couple of years later, you can't find the rat-tailed pipefish anymore. Uh, it may not be called the rat; it's called something like that. But anyway, it's um, a good name though you've yeah. invented. <laughs> even if, it, <laughs> if it's the wrong name, <laughs> it's a description of it. Um, yeah. uh, uh, and 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 that just reminds you that if if a, a species of fish in the North Atlantic suddenly just hits the jackpot in terms of breeding. You know, the conditions are just right. It can have an enormous burst of numbers and then it can collapse again a few years later. Uh, These things happen all the time. Uh, And um, uh, nothing ever stays the same. Everything uh, is is on the move, as it were. Uh, Species go up, species go down. I mean, I keep a very keen bird watcher and my father very conveniently wrote down in 1950 every species that he knew that bred on our farm then and I did the same last year and compared the two lists and there are about 13 species that bred when he was there in 1950 that no longer breed and you know what there are 13 species that breed now that didn't breed then (laughs) isn't that interesting very interesting yeah 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 (laughs) now you you probably don't like the new ones you know like Canada geese or uh, collared doves as much as you like the old ones like corn crakes and um, uh, red starts but um, uh, that's partly just prejudice I mean actually there's some rather wonderful ones like oystercatchers, that breed now and shell duck which didn't
0: in his youth we seem to see fewer sparrows around now than we did in, in
1: well that's youth. no longer true uh, oh. it, there was a huge crash in the sparrow population uh, in the UK particularly hmm. not not elsewhere in the world I mean this sparrow, sparrow is one of these Cosmopolitan species found in cities all over the world, and and actually, if you go to New York, you see millions of sparrows. Right. But the numbers are coming back up now right. in in London, and nobody quite knows what happened. It was probably a disease. I mean, uh, it might have been competition from other birds because so many other birds are moving into cities now, um, uh, uh, and uh, you know, the, the, there's a new species of sparrow on the planet. Um, it's called the Italian sparrow, and it came about as a hu- result of a hybridization event between the house sparrow and the Spanish sparrow, I think. Uh, and it's now uh, breeding true and not really breeding with either of its parent species. So that's plus one species oh, uh, right. in Europe, interestingly.
0: A completely new...
1: Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't fully qualify as a species yet, but, but there's a very, very interesting book by uh, Keith Thomas, an ecologist at York University, um, uh, which is all about how... Actually, there are we're creating species at a surprisingly high rate because of the rate we're disturbing the world. There's a lot of hybridization events going on. There's a lot of sort of uh, uh, isolations. You know, you take a species to an island and it evolves in a different direction, etc. Uh, so, actually, uh, in some ways, we're, we're going through a burst of speciation as well as a burst of extinction uh, in terms of the planet.
0: Where, as, a, as an ornithologist, do you stand on what I call bat jumping, bird slicing, eco crucifixes? <laughs> Are you a fan? (laughs) No wind turbines are a terrible terrible
1: waste of time money energy and everything else. Um, uh, They can produce electricity sure but not when you need it because it's not predictable enough uh, and not in sufficient quantities because it's a very low density source of energy so you need an awful lot of them. I mean David Mackay when he was chief scientist at DEC did these calculations about how many wind turbines you'd need to produce a significant quantity of britain's energy and it's ridiculous you know you'd, you'd need an enormous amount and people boast about the fact that you know i don't know last week 33 percent of our energy came from wind or something um well no they mean 33 percent of electricity which therefore means about five percent of energy because electricity is only 20 percent of energy etc you know uh, so they're really making extraordinary little contribution and meanwhile it takes 150
0: tons of coal to build one did you know that <laughs> <laughs> Probably they, it, it uses up more energy to produce them than they actually produce in their life. Well, not quite. Um, sadly, that's
1: not quite true. It's jolly nearly true, but the but the point is. During its lifetime, and a wind turbine has got to produce not just the energy to make it, but the energy to make its successor. If you see what I mean, to repair yes. it and to build the next one. Otherwise, it's not contributing at all. You know, yeah. it's just a, a, an energy sink. Yeah, uh, and it just about meets that criteria if it can go for twenty years or so. Uh, but some of them are not going to go for no. twenty years. Uh, I mean, uh, some will go a bit longer. Um, but you know, for for a decent energy system, I mean, you know, when you think about it, the whole of civilization is based on using surplus energy to create improbable structures. This building your suit, my spectacles; these are all improbable things. They all need to be built with energy. So we've got to have surplus energy. And in the Middle Ages, there was very little surplus energy. I mean, you know, you there was a little bit left over when you'd when you'd grown the grain, you had to keep some back for growing the next crop and you had to eat some yourself and then you could give a little bit to the king or the baron or something to build a castle with and that's your surplus energy to create civilization with, as it were, or the monk or whoever it is. Um, to, uh, now, uh, a wind turbine, I mean, energy any, any energy system that doesn't give you back seven times as much energy as you put into it is pretty well a waste of time because of the wastage, et etc. Et so you need a sevenfold ratio, and wind turbines struggle to achieve that. So I'm sorry, this is not a sensible way of trying to produce energy. And environmentally, it's disastrous. I mean, my home county of Northumberland has far more than its share of wind turbines. It's an exporter of wind energy. Some beautiful views, you know, from um, the Farne Islands looking past Lindisfarne to the Cheviots inland, Now all you see is a Golgotha of these hideous things. And why? I mean, poor people are, I mean, these are immensely profitable for rich people. Uh, You know, either plutocrats in the city of London or landowners uh, in Northumberland are raking it in from these things. Um, And I could be raking it in as a landowner in Northumberland, and I'm very stupid not to have jumped on this bandwagon in some way. Were you
0: offered the chance? Yes. Yeah. Du-
1: men in double-breasted suits like the one you're wearing would come <laughs> and knock on my door and say, you know, would, they still do. Actually, it's the solar ones now. You know, would you like a million pounds? You know, da, 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 and I say, get lost. And...
0: Uh, that's rather stupid of me. But, yeah, but a million pounds is a, is a, is a lot of money. Well, if you have a way... You
1: yeah, I mean, can... it wouldn't always be. Well, no, I, I probably, you know, I don't know. I haven't done that. I daren't do the calculation, yeah. but I could probably be in that bracket.
0: Well, it also, I mean, if you were if you were completely without morals, you could say, well, sod this. I'm just going to rake in the money and go off to the, the Caribbean and, and live off my immoral earnings.
1: There's an idea. Yeah, well, there's, a, <laughs>
0: there's an idea. Yeah, but what are, where are you on the on the damage they do to birds and bats i mean do, is, is it yeah. a problem
1: no, no um people say well hang on a minute you know more birds are killed by flying into greenhouses or killed by cats than are killed by wind turbines oh. well not eagles they aren't no <laughs> i mean the point about wind turbines is they selectively chop up soaring birds yeah. and whether it's wedge-tailed eagles in tasmania or white-tailed eagles in norway or whatever you know they, they these are a serious threat to these large soaring birds um uh, and uh uh they don't make life any easier and offshore they are slicing up gannets now gannets as it happens are increasing dramatically in number i mean the All the populations around the UK just booming. The Bass Rock and other ones. Don't really know why. You must have seen a lot of St Kilda. Yeah, yeah, Um, absolutely. um, uh, uh, So maybe it doesn't matter if we kill a few thousand of them with uh, wind turbines. Uh, But you know. Uh, red-throated divers are not doing so well and they get killed by wind turbines too offshore i'm talking about so um uh, it is an issue the bat thing is very interesting because it turns out that if they get too close to a wind turbine their lungs explode or implode or something barotraumatization is that what it's It's called (laughs) very nice i didn't know that word um so um uh and this is clearly uh uh, you know uh, an issue as for whether they're wiping out insects um I have my doubts that they're all that significant but they certainly need a lot of cleaning of dead insects off off their blades. You know, it it isn't you you stick up a huge thing sucking energy out of the wind in a landscape. It's going to make a difference, it's going to make a difference to wind speed, it's going to make a difference to the ecology, it's going to make a difference to the peat that it's sited in, etc. much better to have very very localized and focused and high density sources of energy like power stations we only need a few of them um, whether nuclear or fossil fuel uh, and uh, then you can leave the rest of the countryside to nature and that's what we should be doing is sparing land from this we, sh- we, we shouldn't be using the landscape to make our energy it's a medieval approach
0: so how do you square the fact that that renewable energy is doing so much in, in its various forms is doing so much environmental damage and yet, the people who are pushing for this stuff claim to be speaking for the environment. It's a paradox, no?
1: Yes, I do think that that um, uh, th- there is a, a genuine hypocrisy here, um, uh, and um, uh, for some reason, the environmental movement and most of the media is now wholly in hoc to the the wind and solar industries. I mean, it's not the hydro industry hasn't got a big influence.
0: No, well, presumably <laughs> um, we, we couldn't have much of a hydro industry. Well, in,
1: yeah, we're, we've maxed out on hydro. Yeah. If we did a bit more, we, we'd ruin all our lovely rivers. Um, so it's not a good idea. But um, uh, you know, the, 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 the if you're in favour, if if you're worried about global warming, then you're in favour of wind power. Is the unthinking equation of you know the likes of the BBC and everyone else. Yep. And it just doesn't follow. I mean, I've been making the case recently that if we're serious, you know, if we're saying let okay, we want net zero by 2050, let's agree that uh, whether we like it or not that's going to be our aim. There's no way we can get there with renewables. I mean, renewables can't do 10% of that. I mean, they're doing 3% of world energy at the moment. Um, which is not about the same as it was 20 years ago. Uh, the reason it's about the same is because biomass has gone down a bit and wind and solar have gone up a bit. Right. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's a trivial contribution. Uh, and the cost is immense. I mean, it's billions of pounds a year. is driving people into fuel poverty. And so if, if, you know, if you are genuinely panicked into thinking that we definitely need to be net zero as a world or as a country by 2050, then forget renewables. The only way you're going to do it, because, by the way, nuclear is declining at the moment too, and uh, the cost of nuclear is astronomical, and it requires public subsidy. Um, There are ways of solving that, but we don't seem to be interested in in doing them. Um, So the only way we're going to do it, therefore, is either by telling people, sorry, you can't go on holiday uh, ever again, um, and you can't turn up your central heating, uh, you've got to live in, in a sort of medieval fashion um, in your own village and stick there. Um, well, that don't work. See Australian elections, see American elections, see protests in France, etc., or you've got to say we've got to find a way of using fossil fuels, but decarbonizing the, the, the emissions that come from them, which means carbon capture and storage, which, by the way, I think we could make work in the North Sea. It wouldn't be cheap. Um, and the only way we're going to find out is by setting up a sort of market system that will solve this problem through discovery and experiment. Um, but don't pretend you can have reasonable living standards in 2050 without fossil fuels of some kind I personally think that that you know displacing coal with gas uh, makes the most sense um, uh, and by the way that's not in my interest because I have got a vested interest in the coal industry not for much longer but I have
0: so you're saying we should frack baby frack. definitely yeah
1: I mean the, the 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 shale gas revolution is the biggest energy breakthrough of the last um, 20 years it's an amazing story uh, it's a remarkable uh, discovery of how to get gas out of uh, tight rocks and you know remember just as just 10 years ago it was conventional wisdom that gas was going to be the first of the fossil fuels to run out that it was already peaking and likely to decline as a source of, of energy Genuinely, that's what that's what everybody agreed, the International Energy Agency, everybody, uh, certainly the Committee on Climate Change, which had these forecasts of ever rising gas prices, which would make renewables look cheap. And of course, gas prices came, went through the floor because of this enormous glut of gas we now have coming out of shale um, because we've been able to get it out of the source rock instead of out of the few places where it had pooled in in in, in loose rocks. Um So uh, the the, the shale gas revolution is a really, really big story. And it resulted in America being the most efficient cutter of emissions in the Western world. It's not extraordinary. To everyone's horror and fear, because CH4 has less C in it than coal. Um, uh, uh, You know, it's a a low carbon fossil fuel, as it were. It's relatively clean. It's very easily transported. It's relatively safe. Um, We've got fantastically good shales under Lancashire and Yorkshire. Uh, And friends of the earth have lied through their teeth to get people to oppose this, as a result of which we're importing gas from other parts of the world where it's produced to much lower standards with much higher fossil fuel footprints, I mean carbon footprints, etc. So it's mad. Our opposition to this is mad and it's based on ignorance and and fear.
0: Let's talk about that ignorance a bit. You and I have both discovered that, and, and Christopher Booker and a few others, Have discovered that this is a target-rich environment for any any vaguely investigative journalist. I mean, it's so much low-hanging fruit that so many stories, so many nonsense stories, to explode. Why, why is the media not covering this this scandal properly?
1: I quite agree. And and I was a Times columnist for five years, and every now and then I would write a column saying, uh, "Don't believe the hype. Global warming is not as bad as you think. Here's the evidence." And a lot of my sort of Times colleagues would get very cross and say, you know, yeah. oh, God, why on earth are we letting him write this nonsense? Yeah. Um, uh, but what what makes me cross is that none of them were prepared to take this topic on one way or the other. You know, they, they would just say, oh, that's for the environmental correspondent. Or I'm not a scientist. I'm not just, a scientist. Yeah. Exactly. Well, sorry, as soon as scientists say we want you to change society, then all of us have not only a right but a duty to cross-question, challenge, and investigate the evidence on which they're basing this recommendation, uh, and uh, I'm I'm very shocked by how opinionated journalists, who feel that on the basis of one news story they can weigh in on whether Amazon is good or bad for the world, or um, uh, whether um, Saudi Arabia is doing the right thing, or or you know or something like that, um, simply won't tackle this topic and the really shocking thing was the reaction to those climate gate emails 10 years ago which were um, very very obviously showing uh, um, uh, climate scientists certain climate scientists not all of them uh, putting their thumb on the scale to try and make the evidence look stronger than it was uh, and trying to keep skeptics out of the literature and uh, all this kind of thing um, uh, and um, the world reacted uh, with a brief burst of horror, followed by, well, hang on, we can't, we can't let people um, think that there's a problem here. So we'll sweep it under the carpet. We'll have a, a whitewash inquiry or two, uh, and then we'll say, oh no no, it was just taken out of context. And journalists go along with this. Yeah. I mean, what happened to the journalist profession? You know, I mean, you and I were brought up to challenge everything. Well, you know, I mean, I was on The Economist and, you know, what you do is you you look at the facts and you say, OK, Mr. Six, you say your profits are going to go up next year. Where's your evidence? Because your profits went down last year and your market share is decreasing and somebody else, your your competitors are doing better. You know, you don't say, oh, I see. Right. Yes. OK, I'll write that. <laughs>
0: Why would you even become a journalist if you didn't want to be a naughty boy chucking stones at wasp nests? I mean, isn't that the job?
1: That's a very good way of putting it.
0: <laughs> Otherwise, we could have gone to to you know got proper jobs in the city or or, or, or somewhere. Should have done really. Yeah, well, we? I, I I think so. I'm not. I am very, very ashamed of my profession, and I blame them in part for this disastrous policy that has just been introduced as her farewell, uh, Theresa May. What's her last move to, to gain her legacy as prime minister? She's decided to poison the wells, sort the earth with this zero, what's it called? Net zero. Carbon- 2050 target. I think
1: mean, without a cost benefit analysis. And yesterday the government announced that the treasury would do a, uh, an analysis of the costs of this, but it would be published after the target had been enacted. And this is barking mad. You know, <laughs> you don't, You don't, I mean, uh, 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 Philip Hammond got criticised for saying this might cost a trillion dollars, but actually if you look at most estimates, even that was an underestimate, it's it's likely to cost more than that. uh, it's you know it's going to cost tens of billions a year and that's if we get there at all and we probably won't. Uh, you know we'll probably spend that money and not even achieve net zero. I mean you've got to decarbonize not just uh, electricity obviously, uh, but heating and transport and um, uh, the cement industry and everything else. How are you going to do that? I mean there's just no practical suggestion how to do that. And the idea that setting the target in itself, will either incentivize industry to solve the problem um, uh, or will somehow shame the rest of the world into following suit is shocking. We've driven all our... You know, we were boasting about having zero coal for for a week or so recently. Mm. Not true. We were getting a gigawatt through a um, uh, connector from the continent, uh, which was where the main source... Was a power station in the Netherlands burning coal?
0: <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. What would it actually? Suppose we were take going to take this seriously. What would we have to do to decarbonise our economy by twenty fifteen? What would it? Um,
1: well, we'd uh, we we would we would have to um, uh, basically, you know, if we if we want let, take take air transport, you know. Um, the pious hope is that somehow we can all grow um, maize in our back gardens, which we can turn into ethanol, which we can put in the tanks of um, aeroplanes. Now, A, do the calculation, how many acres do you need, you know, for one transatlantic flight? It's gigantic. I mean, it's ridiculous. We haven't got nearly enough land in the UK or anywhere else to, to do that. So that's the first problem. Uh, B, well hang on when you burn ethanol don't you get CO2 yes you do so that is an emission ah yes but um you're going to grow the crop again next year so that counts as net zero well not if you take into account the fact that the tractor has got to plant the the the, the maize what's the tractor running on oh well, it's running on the ethanol too oh right so we need more fields for that you know so <laughs> just, you know you start start running through the numbers and you get into the most ridiculous situation uh, I mean apart from anything else we would need to retrofit our housing stock uh, in such a way that it could uh, run on electric heating rather than gas heating that it was much better insulated etc well you and I know that, that you know Britain in particular has a huge stock of uh, relatively drafty homes because we didn't get invaded or bombed quite as much as other places and um, uh, built 150 years ago, which we're quite proud of. I mean, my house is 300 years old. It's it's a very beautiful house. Um, I, I don't want to have to knock it down and build that sort of or putting
0: uh, those horrible you know, windows of... in. That those <laughs> I quite like UPVC
1: you double d- glazing windows what, on your
0: on your what, on your house. Well, I wouldn't be allowed on my house. There's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to change all that.
1: Yeah, I don't mind it on other people's houses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Um, well. Um, you, you're in the Lords, so you spend a lot of time in the company, for better, better or for worse, with politicians. Why, do, why do they not get this? Um,
1: because they live in a very small, uh, in our case, SW one glass bubble uh, with a filter bubble place where they're hearing their own views back to themselves uh, is the principal answer to that question. Um, and every now and then they get an electoral, electoral shock rather than electric shock yeah. <laughs> on um, uh, from the electorate about this. So Macron got it from the gilet jaune. Um, uh, the Americans delivered one to Hillary Clinton. Um, notice she didn't dare raise climate change in the 2016 election, even though Trump was running as an out and out, not just a skeptic, but you know, it's all a hoax type, yeah. type sort of ultra-sceptic, uh, which is, by the way, a position he adopted not because he believes in it and sits up late at night reading papers about climate sensitivity, but mm-hmm. because that's the way to win the Republican nomination. Right. <laughs> well, good, good luck to him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The Australians, etc. So I think in Britain, the politicians are underestimating the number of people out there in the country... Who think this is exaggerated nonsense designed to feather the nest of uh, crony capitalists, which it is, which it is. Yep. Uh, and um, that there's a huge wellspring of support to be tapped out there if we have the courage to ignore the BBC uh, and the Guardian uh, and, and David Attenborough. Uh, yes, well, you know David Attenborough is a great, great figure, and I hugely admire him, but uh, I. Uh, you know some of the stuff he's said in recent programs, like walruses jumping off cliffs because of climate change, is just silly. You know, I mean, please stick to some facts. But people, people trust.
0: He's a, he's a, an authority figure that people trust.
1: Well, the argument from authority is is a big problem here. Uh, mm. Is that we've put people on pedestals and uh, they, uh, you know, the um, what was it? Uh, Richard Feynman said uh, um, something about, uh, um, I've forgotten it, but um, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. Yeah. (laughs) In other words, it's the facts that count, not the opinions. Yeah. Uh, And uh, in this complicated area, we're talking about an extremely um, complex system of the climate uh, in which CO2 is one factor, and there are many other factors. Uh, The idea that there's only one answer to this is nonsense. And that's and science has always kept itself honest by being very decentralized, notice, you know, lots of people in different universities so they can challenge each other. Uh, and you know, professor X speaking nonsense is what they love to say. But on this no suddenly they must all say exactly the same thing.
0: Now that's unhealthy. Well, well absolutely. I I mean hasn't it discredited not not science, the whole of science, but it's damaged its credibility. Well, my I'm
1: a huge fan of science. I've written about science all my life. It's been my career. I've, I've, you know, I've, bi- I've written biographies of scientists. I've, I, I'm, I think science is the greatest human achievement bar none. The, the wonderful knowledge, you know, deep geological time, the double helix, you know, everything is just incredible. What's been discovered by science, and I still am a huge fan of science as a philosophy, mm. but science as an institution has behaved so badly in the last 10
0: years that it has lost my support. So how do we, how do we, I mean, well, I suppose we look to America, don't we? The example of Trump and Bolsonaro, that there is there is a backlash finally starting in the world.
1: Well, I don't know um, uh, quite how, um, every time I think that the tide is turning uh, on this, um, uh, it seems to get worse and by the way it's only when unemployment's really low and everything's fine that people get really worked up about this yes, you know. so did. the sad thing is that it'll probably take a recession before people start seeing through some of this um uh but um uh, i think you're right that um uh, that That Trump, and, you know, after all, before him, John Howard in Australia and Stephen Harper in Canada both showed that you can be pretty sceptical on this stuff and very electorally successful. Yeah. Um, Tony Abbott, likewise. Uh, uh, So... Um, it's a shame we've never really tried it in this country where Mm. we are very, very much enthralled to the environmental movement. And the problem you've got is the huge power of the NGOs in this area. I mean, Greenpeace, World Wildlife Fund and Friends of the Earth between them, which are three big multinationals, you know, with highly paid CEOs and um, investment policies and all this kind of stuff mm. <laughs> uh, and doing a lot of currency trading. You know, there, there's no difference between them and Goldman Sachs, really. No. <laughs> um, they Their annual income collectively is over a billion dollars a year. That's a lot of money to spend on uh, putting pressure on politicians. We are so people. on the wrong side of the argument. I know. Think how rich we'd be. Yeah. We, we could still be. If you change your mind, you know, the, then, then you, they'd give you every prize in the book, James. Think of it.
0: I've just seen before you came. I was watching Sky, Sky News, and you had Bill McKibben being interviewed by um, what's that, Porky bloke? Um, uh, uh, Adam Bolton. Adam Bolton. Yeah, <laughs> um, Adam Bolton. And Adam Bolton was just sitting there with his tongue hanging out, in listening to his every every alarmist claim in much the same way that Michael Gove co responded oh, when yeah. Greta Thunberg oh, no. arrived. And that, what was that about?
1: Well. It's not. It, it's a form of cultural revolution that's going on here, and it's not just about climate change. It's it's with you know the trans issue, etc. This this business of bullying people into a particular view of the world uh, and trying to drive out alternative views. As I say, it reminds me of the early history of Christianity, but um, it reminds me also of what happened in Cambodia, what happened in China, etc. Um, now we thought that was because they were authoritarian regimes with communist parties in power um that that suddenly you know everyone people were denounced for having the wrong views and children were telling their parents were telling on their parents and getting them arrested and things like that uh you know really nasty things happened in the cultural revolution in china um but i think we're now discovering that that kind of thing can happen in democracies too um uh, and i do worry that um uh, the um the, the the lack of dissent and Challenge to some of this stuff uh, is is getting really extreme. And when you put a sixteen year old girl with Asperger's up and say, "Don't you dare criticise her," because that's impolite to a disabled child. Yeah. I'm sorry, but if she's pr- making political points, then we need to challenge them. Yeah. And she was making political points. Yeah. You know, uh, it's it's an extraordinary situation we're in.
0: I would like this podcast to go on for several days because you are you're you're an endless source of fascinating information. But just to round up, because so I've got to go and see Pretty Patel, as you know. Um, Lucky you, Pretty's she, she, great. She's great, she's she, a star. and she's sound on climate change, isn't she? She's sound on everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, suppose I am a, a a typical kind of punter in the street who believes in what David Attenborough says and 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 is very concerned and maybe or. Unlike the the hedge funder I heard of the other day, who's given money to Extinction Rebellion, what would your message to these kinds of people be? How how would you address their arguments? Um, I would, I
1: I, I would simply say, what is your view on the level of climate sensitivity? What do you think the the correct number is? And if they would say, I'm sorry, I'd I'd leave that to the experts. I would say, well, no, sorry, this isn't good enough because this is the absolutely central number behind every calculation made about whether we're facing a a minor problem or a major problem. And and it's a very uncertain number. We do not know the number. The IPCC hasn't been able to narrow the range in which they think the number is. uh, But lots of lots of good evidence has shown that it's a lot lower than we thought it was 20 years ago. Do you agree with that evidence or not? And they would say, "Look, sorry, I don't read those kinds of scientific papers. It's not my expertise." Well, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. You should go and get, you know, go and do a maths degree first, if, if it if it's that's what it takes, and then read the papers. Go and read Nick Lewis's papers and see whether or not you agree that climate sensitivity is low. Because if you don't agree that it's low, then you've got to give me evidence as to why you don't think it's low. And uh, so, you know, I would just go straight to the heart of the The numerical issue... Now, I'm not very good at maths and I'm not very good at climate science, but I've jolly well made myself get under the skin of this subject to the point where I can uh, assess the arguments. And on my assessment, climate sensitivity is likely to be, not impossible that it's not, but is likely to be low enough that we are not facing a major problem, let alone extinction within
0: a few years. Have you come across Ronan Connolly?
1: Ronan, no, I don't think Ronan I not Ronan
0: Connolly was he was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He's an independent scientist in Ireland, and his father was also an independent scientist, and they just they just love the science, both on the left. And so Ronan naturally predisposed towards believing all this climate stuff, yeah. he and his dad spent five years reading up all the papers that had ever been written on climate change. Brilliant. And I said, "Well, what did you conclude?" And he said, "Well, he said i think there probably is an anthropogenic element in climate change but it's mainly to do with the urban heat island effect correct he said he <laughs> said there's really I mean, not correct, but uh, yeah, he said there's right, really right there's that. really no strong evidence to see well no evidence i think was what he said to suggest that actually we're heating the planet in a catastrophic way because of co2 emissions right. there's, there's the science doesn't right. support it right right so and
1: and by the way you know, look at the evidence on whether or not it's changing the weather, which is, after all, what we're supposed to worry about. You know, Roger Pielke has shown that um, uh, it's um, uh, there is no increase in storms. Uh, the percentage of the world in drought is generally trending a little downwards, which is consistent with it getting a little bit warmer. So there's a bit more moisture in the air and that kind of thing. Um, and by the way, we haven't touched on global greening. And I'm sorry, you must, you but must I, 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 I really—it's so been completely dropped from mm. the subject. But it's enormously important. The extra CO2 in the air is the reason we now know, from really good scientific work done by NASA and Beijing University and other organisations, is responsible for the fact that we have more green vegetation on the planet, particularly in arid areas, um, to the tune of about fourteen percent, which is equivalent to adding two mainland North America's worth of green vegetation. To the no, re- really. <laughs> and that's over 30 years.
0: And that's feeding a lot of people, I presume, and... Well, it's responsible
1: for an, uh, for an increase in crop yields, particularly, again, in arid areas, which tend to be poor areas. Um, uh, but it's also responsible for there being more food for caterpillars, more food for
0: birds, more foods for
1: rabbits and deer. And so
0: how so does that. the other side respond when you point this out?
1: Well, they, they say, yeah, yeah, sure, but we A, we knew about that. <laughs> or they say yes but that effect is going to fade later in the century and it's going to go into reverse and you say on what evidence on a model well what was fed into the model rcp 8.5 which is the scenario that assumes that we go back to burning coal in a big way and assumes that the oceans boil and there are 12 billion people on the planet living very rich lives but uh, not inventing anything you know it's a sort of bonkers assumption a
0: bonkers scenario Matt, will you promise me that when your next book comes out, you come back on the podcast, A, to plug the book, and B, to give us more the benefit of your, your wisdom and knowledge?
1: I will, but the book is not about climate change. It's about innovation.
0: Then no, that's cool. I loved your last one. Well, it was it was the last one? I loved the evolution Ration- of everything. Oh, I hadn't I, I yeah. yeah. done that one. No. Rational optimist. No, nobody has. Nobody read it.
1: Did they not? No, rational optimist was very successful, but evolution of everything I thought it was a brilliant title, and I thought it was a very clever book, but nobody else agreed.
0: Um, it got good reviews,
1: but it, but it just didn't catch the public mood for some reason. I'm going to have to have to but read the it. The next one's called How Innovation Works, and it comes out this time next year.
0: Brilliant. Well, you're coming back then. Thank bye. you very much. Definitely. Okay. Bye bye.
1: Subscribe with me!